Welcome back to 95 Photographer, the podcast to help you get more shoots, to make more money and spend more time doing the things you love. And today's episode is with an absolutely top guy, a solid bloke and someone who's got more experience of being a filmmaker than you can shake a stick at. Andrew Cousins runs Bloomsbury Films from the heart of London from Bloomsbury, actually. He's been running the business for a number of years, and he isn't a photographer who now uses a camera to shoot video, which is what a number of us tend to be, including myself, but he's very much a business owner with a team of people. So it's great to get a completely different insight into running a business operation like that. But we don't just talk about that kind of thing, of course. Andrew breaks down for us the way that he brought his filmmaking business to life. He unpacks the direction he's taken and the reasons behind it. He talks about what he did in 2020 when the world kind of stopped, and we talk about the art of filmmaking. But then at the end, I introduce something new, which is a series of would you rather questions just for fun. I came across these recently and it was a great opportunity with Andrew to randomly select some of them. But that's at the end of the episode. For the moment, let's get into the start of this episode as we welcome the man himself, Andrew Cousins. Andrew, thanks for being here on the podcast. I really appreciate your time here today. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. I was worried I was going to be late there for a second because I was trying to do some last-minute tasks. As you always do when you're like a self-employed person, you've got extra tasks to do, things to fill in, and uh, today's job is planning a shoot for next week, which involves filming on a helicopter, uh, which uh, I've never done before, but I'm told I've got like 15 minutes to like rig it all up and uh, have mm. it ready to shoot because they charge for being on the ground. Oh, sorry, the heliport do, so you have to be really efficient. Oh, I see. So as soon as it lands, they're clocking up a fee, and you got to. they want you to sort yourself out and then get up again as fast as possible. Exactly. So I've been looking at photographs of what this helicopter, is a Westland helicopter, looks like, because I have absolutely no idea where I'm going to put the cameras Yeah. till I see it. But anyway, that's the joys of uh, filmmaking. Um, there's always a problem to solve, always something to, like... Uh, get your head around and think about and uh, I think that whether you're a filmmaker or photographer there are always those hidden tasks those hidden like things to consider to balance that most clients just have absolutely no idea and you have to kind of like swan along making it seem like it's no problem at all where you're trying to uh, underneath unfurl and, and fathom the answer. Do you think it's a slightly futile effort on the part of filmmakers and photographers when they do try to educate the client as to all of those extra things that the client doesn't think about? Hmm. That's a good question. I think it's important to value yourself and value your work and to convey that, but without being onerous and laborious, mm -hmm. because I think that does put people off. Mm. But I think that you know, I recently had an experience with a web designer who we, we got along fantastically, but right at the end we fell out. And we fell out because he had become resentful about the amount of hours he'd spent on my project. And even though I'd paid, I'd paid him every penny he'd ever asked me. Hmm. In fact, he'd even asked me if he could increase his fee at one point. I said, yeah. But the point is that he had undervalued his own time and his mm. own work, kept mm. it a secret to himself, got resentful, <laughs> and then unloaded that on me when I wasn't <laughs> expecting it, because obviously I have no idea. 
Um, yeah. But I, but it taught it taught me a lesson, which is that you know if you don't value yourself, you can't expect other people to value. Hmm. But that is different from being paid for it. I know that we all in the creative industries feel like, oh, we should have got paid more for that, or you know they don't really appreciate the time, and that's true. Mm-hmm. But actually, what's what would mitigate that to a large extent is at least if you are you know able to communicate that in some way, or to say you know, my work uh, includes some kind of consultancy or mm-hmm. uh, my time is available for a site visit. Because I think that, you know, little things add up and mm. your clients are more likely to appreciate you if they know what you're doing. I think that's totally fair enough. I'm just thinking back two hours ago, I picked my car up from the Audi dealership uh, because I needed them to diagnose a problem and they charged me a £60 fault diagnosis charge. And I thought to myself, that's totally fair enough, actually, because they've diagnosed the problem. It doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to ask them to do you know from their point of view i could take that take their knowledge that they've just given to me and go somewhere else it's going to be cheaper so it's totally fair for them to charge me and i think you're right a lot of photographers wouldn't do that they wouldn't necessarily charge for their time to go and do a site visit they wouldn't charge for their consultancy they wouldn't charge essentially for their expertise that they're imparting which is otherwise for free yeah even if you don't get paid put it on the invoice or put it put it in communication so they know they're getting a benefit Mm. Um, because I think that you know it's certainly a characteristic of uh, filmmakers and photographers uh, that I've met you know from time to time to feel put upon or to feel like you know not recognized and I think that it does you know it can undermine your uh, enthusiasm for a job but I think Mm. that if you you know uh, do declare uh, what you're doing uh, you will feel recognized and feeling mm. recognized is a big step towards you know, being creatively free and happy. Mm. Mm. Yeah, whenever I invoice uh, a client and if there's been any element of anything being included free of charge as an additional service, then I'll still put it on the invoice as a charge and then I'll have a, a minus amount for exactly the same amount underneath. And it's almost like the, the software can't cope with it not being there because the software... Uh, sort of values the photographer or the filmmaker and so I need to manually do a, an, a, an extra line and then it means of course that the client gets to see it and they you know it doesn't go unnoticed put it that way that's a good idea you probably go further than I do <laughs> <laughs> I tend to geek out and stuff like that Andrew tell us a little bit about your background how long have you been doing this for and you know where where, where are you actually from where, where were you born and brought up I was born in North London in Enfield. Um, I grew up in Hertfordshire. Um, my first employment was in the print industry. Uh, my father had a print business, and I actually went to I actually went to university as a mature student. I didn't start university until I was twenty seven, okay. um, and I did a ba- a bachelor's and a master's degree. And I think it's partly because sometimes, especially when you're young, you kind of fall into things hmm. that may not be your choice or may not be something that you've grown into because I think that you know very few people know what they want to do in life and I think Mm. that you actually only get there through doing whether it's even doing the wrong thing so you know I ran a print business for years and then I became a student Mm. and I ended up doing all sorts of jobs from driving lorries for Royal Mile to cutting grass the side of motorways and oh yeah you know and and the thing is that actually those kind of jobs really gave you a sense of value proportion and you know ethics I mean it grew Mm, so I did a master's degree uh, after my bachelor's degree both in English 
But I already knew within a few years at university that I was interested in filmmaking. Mm. And after writing a very long thesis for my master's degree, I thought, well, I've just sat in the British Library every day for a month writing mm. 500 words a day. I'm mm -hmm. going to carry on sitting in the British Library now writing 500 days, uh, words a day on a script, okay. which is exactly what I did. And I mm. wrote a terrible script uh, because <laughs> you can't not write a terrible script if you've never written a script before. Yeah. But mm -hmm. the point is I did it. And I did it and I got some input. And then I started shooting the script to this short drama okay. uh, straight away, which was, again, I wasn't ready. The script wasn't ready, but mm -hmm. you still have to do it because doing is learning. Mm -hmm. And I developed the project over, over time. I extended it. I expanded it. And I ended up after a few years and a lot of credit card debt, uh, taking it to the Cannes Film Festival and to the Edinburgh Film Festival and becoming a little bit of a producer as well because that's marketing. So right. the filmmaking, the creative, the directing or the writing, that's the creative side of it and then you've got to promote it. And mm. I found that actually really humbling because in Cannes there are 900 films for sale at that time. I'm sure there's even more now. And you know, you're competing for attention, uh, uh, exposure. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I, I did that and it was a great experience and I went on to do other things along the same lines. But I was still doing sort of like different jobs as well. Uh, you wouldn't believe the jobs I've done, really. And Give me some examples. Working in the records department of the Nursing and Midwifery Council. <laughs> Um. <laughs> that, of, of all of the things you were about to say, that was probably literally at the bottom of the list of ones I thought you were going to say. Yeah, I just lot, I've done a lot of kind of. It's funny because you know when I ran a print business uh, in my uh, in my mid twenties, my father passed away when I was twenty one, so I took the business over. I had fifteen staff. I ran a consequential business. Uh, for eight years and then sold it. And then I invested my money into property, which is probably quite wise at the time. But anyway, the point is that, you know, despite those slightly more highfalutin roles, I did a lot of menial roles as well, because I think that when you're developing your interests, uh, you need to be able to support yourself. But you also, sometimes you don't want a big distracting job that you're in love with, because mm. you'll never get around to doing the other thing that you really want to mm. do. Mm. So, Anyway, in 2000 and, um, 2005, mm -hmm. my, uh, my phone rang and um, someone asked me if I could film a wedding. And I thought, mm -hmm. film a wedding? I suppose. I suppose I could film a wedding. Um, if you're going to do it properly, you're going to need this, this and this, which was way over spec. And I quoted them and I didn't get the job. Hmm. Uh, but I did get some insight hmm. because... Being a filmmaker, I thought, well, I do need to earn income. And the definition of a professional, whether you're a professional hairdresser or a professional footballer, is you earn your money solely from what you do. So at that point, I wasn't a professional filmmaker. I was a filmmaker, but I had a job. So hmm. to become a professional filmmaker, I earned my income from it. I needed to do commercial work. Hmm. And I... Uh, decided at that point that I would start doing events because they were, unlike today's COVID times, highly unpostponable, mm. very solid and reliable. People book you for a date. It doesn't change. Mm. It's very predictable. And uh, I developed uh, Bloomsbury uh, as an event filming business uh, with the intention that I would, uh, you know, maybe do it for a few years and see what else uh, arises. Mm -hmm. And I've now been running it for 16 years.
So when you first started it, did you start it on your own with you doing the shooting and the editing and the accounts and making the tea and everything else? Or did you start it by employing people from the word go? The latter. So although I classify myself as a filmmaker, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm a camera operator. Mm. And when I shot all of my drama stuff, I was never behind the camera. I had, a, mm. I had a DOP, I had a cinematographer, but I had to orchestrate things. Now, funny enough, I, shoot, I can shoot very ca- competently, but when I started Bloomsbury, I s- specifically went for a business model that would enable me to field multiple jobs on a single day mm. because I couldn't see how you could make money by doing only one job at one time, especially mm. if you're talking about weddings where it's mainly on a Saturday and it's mainly between May and September. Mm. You can't make enough money. So I, I remember within the first three or six months of starting that, uh, you know, I remember, I think it was May of 2016, I had five jobs in that day. Okay. Uh, and I had kittens. I had kittens. Yeah, I had a sure. lot of worry. Mm. But prior to that, uh, when I gave up my day job at the Nursing and Midwifery Council, I took out a loan from the Alliance and Leicester mm-hmm. to set up my business. And within three months, I'd spent all the money and didn't even have any customers. But that's because I didn't understand that the wedding business was seasonal that time. Yeah, I think I just, yeah. you know, like you just don't know. No. Um, so luckily by May, I'd got enough business to keep going. Mm. And yeah, and the business has evolved from that, from being an event filming business that was largely doing private events to doing corporate and private events to now doing promotional documentary commercials and other stuff okay well let's come on to what those other things are in a moment I just wanted to ask you just now because you've, you've touched on something close to my heart the very fact that when you're out if you're if you're if you're the only person shooting if you're doing everything in your business then you can't do more than one shoot at a time and at that stage a lot of filmmakers and photographers exactly the same find it quite hard to recruit other people because quite often the client is buying into that person to be doing the work um, do you think it's this might sound like a bit of a loaded question. Do you think it was an easier uh, approach to start off with that business model instead of doing what some of the people listening to this might might have done, which is to be a filmmaker and be the only person doing it, possibly because maybe they were a photographer and now with cameras you can do both, but they're still the only person doing it, trading their time for money, essentially. Yeah, well, no, that's completely understandable. And to be honest, you only have you have the most control when you're doing it yourself. So uh, it started for me because obviously in the film industry, you have a division of labor. You do, mm. you know, you have a crew. So never having been a professional photographer, I, you know, my mentality was different. I always knew you had to bring in a group of people. And then obviously hiring hiring cinematographers what I've noticed is there's the world of difference between cinematographers and photographers because I've since tried to hire photographers and I find mm. it so much harder mm. to hire photographers. I mean, I can do it, but much, much harder to hire photographers than cinematographers. And the reason being is the cinematographers are much more used to working as a member of a crew and photographers don't like feeling that they're an employee. They want to be mm. the, you know, they want to be in control. They want to, mm. and also yeah. if you're re- retailing, let's say you're retailing your time for a thousand pounds a day and then someone offers you 400 as a salary, I think anyone would consider 400 pound quite a decent salary for a day. But photographers I find have very often the retail price tag in their minds mm. that makes it very hard then to be, uh, you know, to be a freelancer. Not everyone, obviously, it, it, but that, that was definitely something I came up against, that it was easier to hire cinematographers than it was to hire photographers. Mm-hmm. 
Well, then obviously then the question is, is it worth, uh, you know, when you are in the event photography or event filming business, mm -hmm. there is this restriction to make a, a large income, which is based on, you know, if you're a photographer, you sell your expertise. So mm -hmm. you then you need to augment your PR. So your expertise comes at a higher premium. So I've watched a lot of high end photographers and how they operate. Mm -hmm. And obviously, they can have assistance. But generally speaking, they're selling their own reputation mm. and people will feel slightly short-changed unless their expectations are properly managed, yeah. that they're not getting the person they think they're getting. And the problem is that that talent needs to do one of two things, either to divest themselves of work and give it to someone else or augment their status, their PR, their reputation, so mm. they can leverage a higher fee. Mm. There's only two ways to go. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, I... At Bloomsbury leveraged their expertise and their reputation, but you are against a current in today's media environment where more and more fish are coming into the water, more mm -hmm. and more equipment. You know, equipment is much cheaper than it was 15 years ago. There is a bigger talent pool than 15 years ago. Right. So you have to work extremely hard. You're extremely hard to augment your PR. Mm. Otherwise, you are really competing against Joe Soap and... That's, you know, that's tricky. Yeah. Um, that is very tricky. Okay, so let's jump back to the things you've been shooting. You mentioned about events, you mentioned about weddings, and then you touched briefly on, on documentaries as well. So just tell us about your journey um, and about where you've been going in the world of filmmaking and why you've been going that way as well. Whoa, I'm going to have to lie down on the couch uh, for that one. Um, <laughs> well, the, th <laughs> the thing is that storytelling is what I care about. Mm -hmm. And events are storytelling. You're telling a meaningful, personal story. And although it doesn't have a huge audience, I value the significance and the impact of it. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're working in corporate and commercial you're also telling a story but the the ownership is different because mm -hmm. corporate ownership doesn't feel the same as private ownership mm -hmm. but there again the audience can be bigger and the impact can be quite substantial mm -hmm. so to me all filmmaking is a form of storytelling and my journey has really been to have a balanced portfolio of work so mm -hmm. obviously private events you know uh, has a has a window corporate events has a different season to mm -hmm. private events mm -hmm. it's autumn and spring but documentary is sort of, to me, a kind of like uh, the creme de la creme, because that is, whether it's telling, a, you know, I've done some brand stories where I tell stories about companies for mm -hmm. PR. I've pitched TV documentaries as well, still am. And I would say that any filmmaker worth their salt wants to reach the most significant audience they can find. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't devalue the work that you do for private individuals or anyone else. You know, that the art is what satisfies your soul mm -hmm. um, and the audience is what grows your reputation mm. and probably your income as well. Mm -hmm. So um, I have just spent about a year and a half on the longest rebrand of a business uh, that I've ever come across, and that's my own. Um, <laughs> I can't believe how long it's taken, but that's because I wanted to do it in an unorthodox way. I wanted uh, a, a top 50 brand agency, mm -hmm. like 
a, you know, a big design company, not, not, you know, the Bloomsbury logo as it stands today mm-hmm. uh, was designed by Central St. Martin student, a very good one in 2009. Okay. Uh, but that brand identity is obviously quite old now. But I wanted a new brand identity and I wanted to rebrand as a studio, not as a film company. Okay. Because I want to have a more of a creative studio feel because there is a, an integration between creative arts now, graphic design, filmmaking, mm. photography, effects, animation. So mm. I need to kind of move with the times and not just be films. I need to be studios. Mm-hmm. So that's one part of the rebrand. And sorry, just to jump in there, which, which of those elements are you able to, to fulfill for your clients? All of them. All of them. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. I have been fulfilling them all of them for a while. We've been doing photography for like since 2011 and then word photography isn't even in the company name. But, you know, not not a huge amount of jobs, but like, you know, a, a substantial, a mm, substantial yeah. amount. Yeah. Um, because it's a natural add-on. But anyway, so hence my experience recruiting photographers. Hmm. Um, so we're rebranding, but the point is, as I said, I want to do it in an orthodox way, but there's a lesson to be learned in this, which is I wanted a top 50 agency uh, because I wanted a relationship with a top 50 agency. I don't, mm-hmm. want, I don't want the student from Central School of St. Martins, which right. would be cheap. Mm. I, w- mm. I wanted a relationship with the biggest agency I could find. And mm. on top of that, I can't, af- I can't afford the biggest agency in the top 50. Mm. That, that, you know, that's not in my budget range. So I've mm. done a quid pro quo where we are commissioned to do f- some films. And I went to the biggest names uh, that I could find. I got you know, handed down the ladder a little bit, okay. but I'm still in the top 50, which is why it's taken so long. <laughs> um, but I'm, su- I- I'm really super excited because the new brand identity is going to reposition us you know, head and shoulders in our market. Um, we're you know, we're going to consolidate what we've got. And I think that we are you know, going to ratchet up. I think that like a lot of business owners, you glide along. Mm. If you're comfortable, mm. if you're comfortable, you glide along. Mm. And then it takes a crisis. Yeah, like last year. <laughs> but it's not actually. The crisis was Brexit to me. The crisis came in 2018 when I could see our booking numbers dropping from mm. about the middle of 2018. Okay. And that, you know, there were reasons for it. I'd, I'd sacked the SEO guy after like eight years. And probably that, you know, came home to roost. Um, but <laughs> it, 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 uh, there were things that, that were already in decline in 2018 that made me think, oh, we need to do something. So when we hit COVID, I was already halfway through my uh, rebrand. Um, mm. But, uh, I, you know, I couldn't reciprocate. So it's taken a bit of a while, but we're there. So have you got a big release date then for this rebrand? No. <laughs> no, I'd like to say I have, but I don't. Because I, yeah, it will be when it's ready. So okay, the, all right. um, the assets are being developed. We just touched on COVID for a second there. Tell me a little bit about how Bloomsbury survived COVID. Survived probably sounds like quite a dramatic word, but you know, how did you find it when you know when we reached March 2020, and what were the what were the coming months like after that for you? I don't think survival is too dramatic a word. I think the events industry, particularly a lot of creative professionals have you know, been to hell and back. I think that obviously the first thing to do is to uh, take advantage of every piece of support you can lay your hands on, which came actually not, not naturally to me. I remember I was filming on Friday the 20th of March as mm-hmm. the Chancellor's announcing the, uh, the, um, the furlough package yep. and my client 
is watching the television and I'm busy working because I don't think there's anything there for me. Mm. Uh, so I wasn't, the I wasn't the fastest to pick up on, um, on the benefits that were available, but I did take everything in the end. Mm. And I'm glad I did. I know I shouldn't say this, but I, I took the COVID lane and invested it on the stock market um, in order to uh, make some money out of it whilst I didn't actually need it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm pleased, I, I'm pleased I did that. Mm. Um, but I think that the reality is obviously we had to like, you know, uh, keep our costs very low. Mm. There wasn't a great deal of work. We were grateful for everything that we had. But in January 2020, I started doing a documentary called My COVID Story, which was uh, about events professionals and their experience of COVID. Mm -hmm. Because I wanted to be able to at least produce some content because I was going crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, if you, if you haven't got any work, at least be of use. Mm. Uh, was you know <laughs> was how I saw it. So producing a series of short documentaries featuring uh, significant industry professionals, uh, talking you know like uh, the Eventus Group, uh, Glenn Sutton. Mm -hmm. He runs a forty million a forty million pound business, or did. <laughs> and right. I think I think I thought there was quite there would be something to learn from how do you how do you cope when that's your cliff edge. You know, my cliff edge is quite, is quite, sh you know, it's quite a short drop, you know, mm. um, by comparison. So I produced uh, some content there, but also did lots of PR films and cleared my entire backlog of film projects that had never got round to editing. But I think that I, I, I knew that it would take longer than anyone thinks because it always does. So I wasn't expecting COVID to be over in a hurry, uh, but I did. I have used the time, I like to think, mm. to you know, to do the rebrand, to do some PR documentaries. Mm -hmm. um, and also, can I say this? Just learn some other skills. I've, I've become a master, I'm, I'm just going to joke now, I've become a master craftsman of, uh, uh, in the garage. I've built things, I've made things, I've, <laughs> yeah. bought, pow I've bought power tools. Right. I've done, you know, I've done stuff that I wouldn't have imagined I'd, you know, be doing, but I, yeah. I, I, I developed confidence in doing other things. It strikes me then that one of the things you didn't do was kind of sit around watching Netflix, just waiting for the market to open, you know, open back up again. No, funny enough, I commissioned a comedy writer uh, to work with me on a COVID Christmas message, which was a promo film. It was like a Christmas message film mm -hmm. uh, that was shot against a green screen. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of a tongue in cheek thing because it's obviously me talking about how, 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 the ru how, how rubbish the year has been uh -huh. and how I've spent all my time eating and watching Netflix, which ironically I hadn't, uh, but obviously it made good comedy and then you see you see you see me against like these different like wonderful locations in central london all the lights mm -hmm. and in the end it kind of reveals that i'm actually standing in front of a green screen right and uh as as the camera comes out i've got my pajama bottoms on um you know i've got, I've got a suit on top brilliant um uh, so i'm gonna have to look this up after this podcast recording <laughs> um yeah it's out there it's out there uh so uh, the thing is no i never watch that much netflix but I do think, though, that uh, it's not, a, you know, I, I wouldn't say there's anything wrong with that. I just think that, like, I like to be doing things. But I, but I think that you also do have to learn when to switch off. So there's a, you know, it's, it's mm. a perfectly decent uh, job. I probably drunk more, actually. That's the, you know, that's the reality. Mm. Uh, you know. Yeah, I, I think a few people did. Yeah. Yeah. I discovered the delights of having home, home shopping delivery and how cheap uh, crates of Budweiser really are. Mm. And mm. Uh, I got loads of them. <laughs> Now, 
Andrew, you mentioned about my COVID story, and uh, I did have a look at my COVID story before we started recording this podcast, and and I, and I spotted that one of the guests that you had on there was James Lord of Bride Lux. Yes, and of course, uh, I've seen you exhibiting at Bride Lux before. For people who are listening and don't know what Bride Lux is, can you just tell us what it's all about? Yeah, it's an organisation that curates uh, luxury suppliers in the wedding and events industry. There is no barrier to entry except that obviously you wouldn't uh, want to participate unless you are able to offer something that was exceptional or unique. And they have a series of atelier, which is a fancy word for an exhibition um, at like, you know, uh, five star hotels. Mm -hmm. And um, they have a symposium, which I recommend, um, which is this November, which is like an industry conference. And um, I've been to the New York exhibiting. I've exhibited several times in London. I've been to several conferences. It's an opportunity to uh, meet and network with people in the luxury market. But I, I think it's important not to assume that the luxury market is the one to aspire to. I think it's a market to aspire to. Mm -hmm. I think you've got to like, you know, I don't I, I think that it's all too often I've made the mistake of thinking that you know like the gold the gold's at the end of the rainbow over there and mm. then when you get there the rainbow's moved I think that mm. I, I I just want to emphasize that you know when I was doing uh more budget level weddings but five of them in a day I was probably making more money mm. than doing one single luxury one the only thing is it's easier to manage one single luxury one so yeah. you know there are swings and roundabouts mm. so I guess one of the things then is that it's kind of intentional marketing as opposed to just sort of making yourself available to anyone and everyone you're sort of deciding right well that's the market I'm going to go after and you know be it the luxury market be it the mid-range market you know you're you're identifying yourself as being in that market and actively going after your 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 bride in that sense is that right yes exactly so obviously with the amount of experience that we have with our studio, which is, you know, we have substantial resources nowadays. We have, you know, every imaginable piece of resource available, mm -hmm. a considerable amount of experience. We obviously don't want to be doing uh, budget level projects. Mm. Um, so we want to be doing more uh, substantial projects. But the thing is, it doesn't necessarily follow that your client will value uh, what you do so therefore you need to be able to market yourself in the right arena mm. and sometimes the client who values you <laughs> isn't necessarily the one that really understands your work but can simply afford your work that can you know that will just yep we tr it, we trust them you know I'm sure my my highest paying clients you know they're not they're not necessarily more discerning than anybody else Mm -hmm. You know, you can get budget conscious clients that are very discerning, mm. but uh, they pay for trust. They pay for ease. They also pay for solutions. Mm. So when I was talking earlier about this you know, job where I'm filming uh, on a helicopter, the logistics on this particular job are very complicated. And mm. I'm confident not many people would be able to take this on. Mm. Um, because it involves not only filming in multiple locations, it's also live. Mm. Um, so it's going to be, you know, T technically and creatively quite demanding well it's, it's being broadcast live is it streamed live yeah streamed live okay wow yeah not all of it but some of it is wow and, and and the thing is it's 
it's it's like uh, I don't know five or six locations all happening at, you know at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but I'm just saying that you know your average videographer wouldn't be able to cope with that kind of job. And obviously, when you build up resources, which in our case means employing people. Mm-hmm. which means regu- regular employment means regular expense, which means you need regular work mm. and mm. good paying work. So I have to, you know, seek out the kind of clients that will be able to afford, not just appreciate it, mm-hmm. but can afford it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, plenty of people appreciate the work, but can't afford it. Do you think filmmakers and photographers spend too much time working on the art as opposed to working on their business? <laughs> how do you answer that question because <laughs> the thing is you have to work on the art mm-hmm. because you have nothing to sell but at the same time you know who wants to be a poor artist you know who uh, isn't getting any recognition mm-hmm. i tell you this actually I, I do a bit of teaching at some uh, universities and one of the things i say to students film students is that when you're starting out, it doesn't matter what the budget is. It literally does not matter. Do not film according to the budget. Mm-hmm. Film according to what is the limits of your ability. Because if you film according to the budget, what are you going to do? Put some kind of subtitles along the bottom of the film going, well, the client only paid us 200 quid and we had this problem and that problem. <laughs> and, you know, we didn't have the... Re- what are you going to do? Because no one cares what you got paid. Yeah, yeah. No, no, you know, like, they'll only look at your work. So don't... So, so I think creative development is important and only, you know... It, I would almost go as far as saying is no matter what you get paid, always you know uh, push it to the limits of what you're capable of because mm. when you're creating your portfolio, no one cares what you got paid, mm-hmm. or if or if you got paid at all because obviously when I first started as a filmmaker, I was doing non you know self-funded stuff. And actually, in the world of um, uh, like event videos and event photography as well, sometimes people suggest that it could be. It could be the worst thing in the world to offer your services for free if you're trying to get into that market. And then other people say you should absolutely do it if you're prepared to invest the time because then it brings you connections, it brings you portfolio, it brings you experience. And, and I tend to find myself in that latter camp. But I, I, but I don't know what do you feel. Everyone seems to have a different opinion on, on this. I think it's more nuanced than either of them, actually. Um, I think that the answer is that you should absolutely do the work for free in order to build your portfolio. But know this, the event industry is notorious at exploiting uh, people uh, and their favours. So don't mm. be surprised if you end up uh, you know, doing something for free and then feeling a bit disgruntled because you haven't really got... Because mm. I, I learned that in 2005. Uh, mm. You know, I was promised the world by a caterer. They give me all their business in future, and I never got a single thing. I, and not to this day. And you know, I learned that. But the thing is, I still have the film. Mm-hmm. I still have the portfolio. I still have the experience. Yeah. But I don't nowadays. When I get asked, mm-hmm. you know, can you do me a freebie, a shoot, a styled shoot, whatever? I would consider what the benefits are going to be because obviously over time the benefits diminish because you've got mm. bigger and bigger portfolio you don't need yep. it yeah but also nowadays uh if i do a styled shoot or something like that i tell them the value like we started the start of this session yep. it's going to cost you three thousand quid or mm-hmm. it costs three thousand quid let's say now i can sponsor this film for three thousand quid but i need to know i need these deliverables in return mm. and i absolutely keep on my phone a list of deliverables i i that i could ask for Okay. Data, or not necessarily data, but you know, access to data. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want. I want a contract that gives me a minimum of X number of referrals. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And the last uh, style shoot that I did, a sponsored shoot, even came with a clause that said, if I don't get any of these within 12 months, you have to pay me. Just so that we know yeah. that we're on board, that this is not a joke. You're not going to say, promise me the world. And then, because yeah. you know, in a year's time, you're going to get a bill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and the thing is, because I put those into my sponsorship contract, mm -hmm. I don't feel bad about doing sponsored jobs because I feel, well, you know, I've made the exchange clear now. Hmm. Whereas in 2005, when I started, I had no contract. I had no, I just had verbal expectations. I didn't hmm. have anything more than that. Hmm. So I think that the nuanced answer to that is, yes, you should do it in order to gain exposure, but know that you're like liable to get taken advantage of. Hmm. And therefore, when the opportunity arises, you know, m m you know, at least to have a kind of contract arrangement so that, hmm. you know, fulfilled or not, that person knows what they owe you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's demonstrating that value the whole time. Andrew, you've referred to the term filmmaker in this, but also a couple of times you said videographer. Which of those terms do you prefer? Have I said videographer? Oh you my did. God. Um, so this is funny. In 2006, <laughs> someone, someone called me a videographer. I'd already been doing this stuff for, for a year in the mm -hmm. events industry. And I thought, what the hell's a videographer? Mm -hmm. I've never heard of a videographer. Videographer sounds like an American invention, uh, yeah. like photographer, but a videographer. Mm. And I, I, I was absolutely uh, bamboozled by the phrase. And I don't like it mm. because I think that, that partly because I know that films are the product historically mm -hmm. of a number of specialists, editor, grader, sound mixer, cinematographer, mm -hmm. director, producer. So the idea of a videographer sounds very much one-man bandy to me. And Bloomsbury Films is just not a one-man band. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, right now, in the wake of COVID, we're about as small as we've been in 10 years, but we're still mm -hmm. not a one-man band. Mm -hmm. We're still at least four people. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I don't think videographer really does justice to the expertise that goes into what we do and I, and and I feel that uh, even when I see applicants for jobs calling themselves videographer I, hmm. I feel like you're more than a videographer you know but that's just you know a word I'm not very common I'm not I'm not very keen on never have been well I, I love the fact that you've got a definite opinion on that Andrew so so that that's really good um Andrew just for complete fun I've got uh, I've never done this before on a podcast but I've got on a website here, a list of 211 would you rather questions. So I'm going to ask you to give me a random number between 1 and 211 and let's see what comes up. 71. 71. Right, let's scroll to 71. Fast scroll, here we go. 59 and 71. Okay. Would you rather never be stuck in traffic ever again or never get another cold? I don't mind cold, so what? What? Where does that leave me? Never um, been stuck in traffic. Oh open yeah, that'd roads. be great. Yeah, yeah. Open roads would be good, Quite. actually, wouldn't it? Yeah. I guess one of the benefits of open road is you could, you know, if you needed to be on a shoot and you needed to be there for, you know, if if the client said, "Can you be here for eight o'clock?" I think every single filmmaker and photographer, if they're told they need to be there for eight o'clock, schedules to arrive there at say seven thirty or something like that because you can't be late for a shoot that you're doing. You're damn right. Time timekeeping is something that I hold very. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't be saying this because I began the session saying I was nearly late. But yeah, I think <laughs> timekeeping is something which uh, matters. Mm. Uh, it matters, and I don't like it in other people that work for me to mm. be late for anything. Mm. Um, because don't say, "Oh, there was traffic," or "Oh, this happened." Because 
It always happens. You mm. have to make an allowance for it. Mm. Mm. Anyway, yeah, come yeah. on. Go any more. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, any other number between 1 and 211, apart from 71? Uh, 17. Let's do it the other way around. 17. Okay, right. Let's go to this. 17. Would you rather go back to age 5? Oh, I saw this one. Would you rather go back to age 5 with everything you know now or know now everything that your future self will learn? I don't want to know about my future self. I think that's... You know very well that when we had this pos- podcast, you asked me if I wanted the questions in advance. And I said, no, don't tell yeah. me anything in advance. Mm. And I think that otherwise there's nothing to discover. There's nothing to learn. And uh, the spontaneity of the moment often is the reveal. I think mm. that you know, premeditating and knowing too much in advance. No, I'd rather discover it all. Okay. But the idea, I guess, of, of going back and, you know, the... Uh, things like the appreciation, you know, understanding and appreciating the value of relationships and stuff like that, where when you're younger, you might, I'm thinking about younger people listening to this, they, they might have more of a relationship with their phone than they do with their immediate family, for example. You know, is it, yeah, right. w- would it be good to understand and appreciate things like that from a younger age? When you're five. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I uh, talk to my kids like nothing else uh, about everything and everything mm. and anything, because I think that noticing things pointing things out discussing things realizing things mm. uh it's it's one of the greatest gifts uh is is awareness and i think a photographer and a filmmaker would relate to this a lot because it's about seeing noticing thinking understanding mm. perceiving i remember when i first got training by my cinematographer in photography mm-hmm. he was training me and you know uh, uh, and and i and i really thoroughly enjoyed that explosion of perception, mm. uh, visual perception. So I think perception is important. So yeah, I'll mm. take that one. Okay, all right. And let's do one more for fun. Any other number? Between what number? One and 211. We got quite a few options. 171. 171. Right, here we go. 171. Would you rather live in a utopia as a normal person or in a dystopia that you are the supreme ruler. I know what you're going to say on this. <laughs> you do? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Dystopia is a supreme ruler. That's like, that's a recipe for personal disaster. <laughs> it is a um, bit, yeah. <laughs> e- e- egotistical like nightmare. Or a normal person in a utopia. It has to be the first one, I guess. Yeah, it has I to thought be you'd say that. Person yeah. in a utopia. Yeah. <laughs> um. Awesome. I, I guess if you're a normal person, you can always relate to other people, can't you? Yeah. Um, I think that the age in which we live uh, has challenged so many norms, Mm. Um, you know, culture, ethnicity, gender. And I think that actually, uh, and also like, uh, I'm old enough to notice the rise in discussions of mental health. This Mm. wasn't a discussion 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And I think that all all these growing awarenesses uh, and the fallibility of the individual. I think that actually the, the most cathartic thing that you can really experience is an understanding of the of the normality of yourself. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, yeah. there's nothing there's nothing supreme about anyone really. Uh, I think you know the humility and uh, self understanding is uh, you know uh, is very important. In fact, I often tell my clients that you know that one of the values I hold dearest as a filmmaker is authenticity. That I think that not really shying away from the real, but celebrating the real. That's, mm. uh, that's a good thing to do. No, I think you're absolutely right.
Andrew, we've got to bring this to a close in a minute. But if anyone wanted to, to find you online, uh, are you on social media at all? Yeah, I mean, I was really avidly on social media, but I can't be bothered at the moment. I think COVID has just taken it off of me. So our Instagram, which is at Bloomsbury Films, and my personal Instagram, which is at Andrew Cousins, they, they exist, but they're not terribly up to date. Uh, YouTube has more content because obviously being filmmakers, we produce a lot of YouTube content. So mm -hmm. forward slash Bloom, Bloomsbury Films, we've got 10,500 followers and um, you know, content goes up quite a lot. And the My COVID story, uh, I'm trying to remember where I saw that. Did, did I see that on YouTube or did I see that on, on Vimeo or somewhere like that? Well, it's on both. Um, okay. But you should, better, you should better find it on YouTube. Actually, if you search for our channel, I recently tidied up the channel homepage so that you've got lots of different lists. Okay. Uh, so you'll be able to find a, there's a playlist for My COVID story. All right. And that's at Bloomsbury Films. At Bloomsbury Films. Yeah, no blues, no, no, no blueberries or bluesberries. No blueberries. <laughs> awesome. Well, look, Andrew, thank you for your time. Thank you for being here today. And I, I really appreciate you giving it up, especially here on a Friday afternoon. Look, it's six minutes to six on a Friday afternoon. It's definite curry night and pint of beer time. Uh, it's definitely get the uh, Budweiser bottles out of the fridge again. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and uh, we have a pizza and movie night with the kids on a Friday. So that'll awesome. be what we do. Awesome. Well, I hope you enjoy it. I'm sure you will. But thank you again for being here. I really appreciate you. Oh, no, that's very nice of you. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak. And I hope it's useful. And that was Andrew Cousins from Bloomsbury Films, the kind of person you can sit and talk with for hours. A big, big thank you from me for coming on to this episode of the podcast, Andrew. I really enjoyed talking to you and I did very much tuck into a fabulous curry after we finished recording. Now, don't forget, you can follow Andrew on social. Just check out Bloomsbury Films on Instagram or Andrew Cousins. That's C-U-S-S-E-N-S. Or you can go to YouTube and search Bloomsbury Films. In fact, I've just tried doing that literally now, and it comes up as the top result. And as he says, 10,500 subscribers, which is no small number. Now, if you're listening to this and you haven't followed this podcast channel yet, then go and do that, because then it just means that when the next episode comes out, you get a small notification on your phone to let you know that it's there. That just means that you won't miss it. But also, if you have any suggestions for future episodes, maybe a guest who you think would serve the audience well or some ideas for future topics to discuss, then you can drop me an email. My email address is simon at bonjourlondon.co.uk. That's simon at bonjourlondon.co.uk, and I will reply to you personally. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to this episode. We look forward to seeing you next time. Have a totally great week and bye for now.